Chapter 11 The Blind Goddess This is Casey James. I don't know where exactly I am. I don't know what's going on. There's a lot I don't know. But I'm going to figure it out. The tunnel is narrow, rough stone walls catching at my clothing as I squeeze past. It's dark, too, and I'm glad I picked up that flashlight or I wouldn't be able to see a thing. As it is, all I can see is the narrow, stone-walled tunnel in front of me. Not quite straight, so I can't see how far it stretches ahead. I walk for ages. I can't tell if it's ten minutes or two hours. Time is meaningless in the dark. It's perfectly quiet, except for my own footsteps. No sounds of pursuit, not even of Deacon catching up with me. So I, I just keep going. By the time I emerge, Stepping out of what looks from the outside like a sort of shallow cave, half hidden under a thicket of brambles and shrubs, the rain has stopped. The sky is still grey and overcast, but everything else is different. There is no sign of Kingsport, or even of the woods I spent last night tramping through. Instead, I step out onto a mostly flat tableland of moss and lichen-encrusted rocks and scanty dry soil. It stretches away from me in every direction, this alien landscape, and I can't see any sign of anything living. No insects, no birds calling or stirring among the rocks, not even a tree to rustle its leaves in the wind. Even the shrubs and brambles covering the cave mouth behind me are still, huddled against the rocks like some small prey animal hiding from a predator. There are other patches of shrubs and brambles across the plain, similarly huddled against rocky outcrops, and as the wind cuts through my shirt and sweater, I can understand why they grow that way. It's cold here, wherever here is, and the wind is sharp as bone. I keep walking, as much to stay warm as for any other reason. There are other reasons, though. The landscape is so flat that I can't imagine Deacon will have trouble finding me. But that also means that if the cultists follow me, they'll find me just as easily. So will anything else that might be hunting me, and I can hear distant howls again, like I did before out near Mara Hartsman's farm. Night gaunts, whatever they are. Or those wolf creatures, maybe. Or something worse. I speed up. After a while, I encounter the rusty tracks of a railway, 
complete with the weathered, worm-eaten poles which still carry sagging electrical wire for the trolley cars. They're in a slight dip in the plain, hidden until I'm almost right on top of the tracks, and the lower ground cuts the wind a bit too. I follow the rail line, on the idea that, like a road, a railway must go somewhere. It does. Well, I assume it goes somewhere useful eventually, but specifically. The rail line leads me to an abandoned train car sitting on the tracks. It's half familiar, bright buttercup yellow like the one in the lake, where I picked up the knife, with brass numbers above the door, labelling it 1852. There's no one inside, but it looks in reasonable condition. Better than reasonable, honestly. It looks as if it could start up at any moment. The seats are all upholstered in plush brown leather, and the windows are shut, although the door is open. It seems like a half-decent place to wait for Deacon. So I board the train car and sit down on one of the seats. Out of the wind, my long night starts to catch up with me, and I think I must doze for a while. All I know is that I startle awake some time later, with my head resting against the window beside me. It takes me a moment to realize what woke me, until a quiet, swishing sound comes again from outside of the train. I raise my head and look, and I see, through the windows of the train car, that there are two men standing some distance away. They are dressed in navy blue uniforms, with the regulation caps that railway staff wear, but there is something wrong with their faces. As I stare at them, one turns towards me and raises his head to sniff sharply at the air, and I can see that where, where his face should be, there, there is nothing. Just a blank mask of skin, broken by a pair of gaping nostrils like a skull or a snake. Then he lifts his head further, and I see the mouth gaping open under his chin, as if someone had slit his throat with a blade, and the wound had opened up and grown a, a double row of sharp teeth. The creature howls into the sky, that same eerie sound as I heard before, but louder and far, far closer this time. jerks me out of my frozen horror and I slide off the seat and out of the door of the train car. The door is, thankfully, on the opposite side of the train to the pair of creatures, so I have the momentary and probably illusory comfort of being out of their direct line of sight, if they can even see, which is debatable since they seem to have no eyes.
I risk a glance back through the windows of the train car, and I see the two of them standing there, heads raised to sniff the air, while their hands are raised palm out. In each palm is a single, wide-open eye, of such a vivid, icy blue that I can see the color from here. So I guess they do have eyes. One of them turns towards the train car and starts walking towards it with a long, shambling stride. That's more than enough for me. I turn and run. I don't know how long I run for. I don't look back even once. I just race madly away from those howling monstrosities and try not to stumble or fall while I do it. I am, in some peripheral part of my mind, grateful to Ariel for insisting that I ask for decent shoes as part of my agreement with Walker. I can feel his amusement in the back of my brain, which is still weird, but he's not the one running across slippery, lichen-covered rocks in a nightmarish dreamscape from which we can't wake up. Or maybe shouldn't wake up. I only stop running when I get a stitch so bad that I actually have to stop. I have at some point left the lichen and rock plain behind and entered a strange ghostly woodland. The trees are widely spaced and pale, maybe some sort of birch or eucalypt but almost entirely leafless. The ground is crunchy with dried leaves and dark gravel, and a hint of ground mist hangs around my ankles. As I walk, rain starts to fall. Light and cold, barely more than mist that dims the already dim daylight further. Stitch or no stitch, I don't stop moving entirely. I walk through the creepy, empty woodland, listening to dead leaves crunch under my feet and water drip from the trees. When I see the solitary figure standing in the woods, at first I think it's a person, or even one of the howling creatures from before, and I freeze with adrenaline tingling in my fingertips and fizzing in my veins. It doesn't move, though, even after a long minute of just watching it. Of course, I don't either, so who knows. But it seems like it's probably not a person or a monster. As I get closer, because of course I get closer. I realize that the figure is a statue. Not just any statue, either. It's a statue of Kezia Gilman, dressed as Medusa. She's wearing that same snake headdress that Deacon found in the underground crypt. Or a stone version of it, at least. And an ancient Greek-style dress. And there is a blindfold 
wrapped around her eyes like those old images of blind justice. She is standing, facing outwards, in front of a little grotto, a sort of shallow cave all ringed around with trees and shrubs, basically invisible from more than a few steps away. To see that there's more than shrubbery and a tiny little stream behind the statue, you have to be standing right in front of it, which is, well, it's discomforting. Even if she is just a statue, I feel like she's looking at me through the stone blindfold. The space behind her, though, that actually feels safe. I know it seems weird to say that it feels safe, but it does. I haven't actually felt safe in, I don't know, a long time. Since before I found the bridge house. Maybe since Eddie vanished. Since he told me about those dreams. You know how this goes, don't you? I go into the grotto. It's not easy. I have to slide past the statue of Kezia, trying not to touch her, but also trying not to get my clothes caught on the brambles and shrubs around her. The cave is tiny, just big enough for me to crawl into, but it's dry and out of the wind, and I feel hidden there, like nothing can see me. It's also a better hiding place than anything else I've seen so far, and I can't actually just keep running. Physically, I can't. After last night, and then that mad dash away from the train car, I'm exhausted. I don't... I don't mean to doze off, but I do. When I wake up, happens all at once. That blink from deeply asleep to being wide awake, without quite knowing what woke you. I lie there for a second, just listening, cataloguing my surroundings. I have a sore neck and shoulder from the awkward position I was sleeping in, curled up against the side of the cave. The sound of the wind in the trees is constant, a faint background of white noise, but I don't hear anything more threatening than that. No footsteps, for instance, or voices, or howls. I lift my head and shift slightly to ease the ache in my shoulders, which is when I notice the snake. It's not that big, really, although it's hardly small either. Pure black, like a tiger snake, which is not good. With a blunt snout and smooth, skin-warm scales. It is curled up on my lap. Its tail trailing down my leg, probably for warmth. I've heard of this happening. Snakes crawling into someone's tent, or even into their sleeping bag, 
on a cold night. There was a YouTube video about a farmer who took a nap out in one of his paddocks during lambing and had a big old tiger snake slide into his pants to take a nap with him. Crazy man pulled it out by the tail, very quickly, mind, and ran away, and he managed not to get bitten. Lucky for him. I imagine the snake wasn't happy about being woken up by being tossed through the air. Tiger snakes can be aggressive. None of that makes me feel better. There's something singularly terrifying about waking up with a wild animal on you or near you. Even if it's not doing anything. And a snake is worse than most things. If I woke up with a lion sleeping on me, I'd be reasonably confident that it had just decided not to eat me, since lions are perfectly happy to kill an unwary sleeping prey animal if they find one. A snake, though. If I move, it might feel threatened and bite me. And if it's venomous... So I freeze. As soon as I see the thing, I stop moving at all, and it feels like my brain just sort of shuts down as well. And then the snake says, Go back to sleep. But you are moving too much. Which turns my brain from frozen, terrified jelly into confused, terrified tapioca doesn't function any better, but if I had any doubts that I'm dreaming, more or less, this would have cured them. Sorry, I manage. The snake shifts slightly, wriggling its muscular body even closer to my belly, and rests its head against my thigh. You can't help it, I suppose. It says, and sighs. Places to be. If you were awake, you could tell, you could me, a tell me a story before you go. I like stories. I stare at it for a bit before I manage to say, A story. says the snake. The snake in it. I don't think I know any stories like that, I say. I don't... What makes a story warm? me pause, because fire makes sense, and warm sand makes sense, but, I mean, tigers are warm, I guess, but why tigers specifically? Tigers? I ask. Tigers, says the snake, 
tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. I recite quietly. The only almost story I can think of that involves a tiger. What immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry? Yes, I like that one, says the snake. To the part about going underground. I pause while I try to remember the rest of the poem. But I don't think there's a bit about going underground. I don't think I know that part. I say. I can recite as much as I know, though, or, or you could tell me the underground bit, if you like. You first do the next, do the next part, part, says the snake. So I recite the next verse. In what distant deeps or skies Burned the fire of thine eyes. On what wings dare he aspire? What the hand dare seize the fire? And what broken, buried path Could twist the sinews of thy heart? For when thy heart begins to beat, Shadowed crossroads dog thy feet, says the snake. That's not how I remember the poem, but I don't remember the right words now, so I just go with it. Shadowed crossroads, huh? I say. Is that the underground part? No, that's later, says the snake. Pauses, hissing to itself, and shifts its coils. It's odd, but I'd almost forgotten. Well, not forgotten, but sort of forgotten. That I was afraid of it. When it shifts, I notice again the muscular weight of those coils across my legs. Somewhere out in the woods, I hear that weird howling again. And the snake goes still. Night gaunts, it whispers. Yeah, I murmur. They were chasing me. And when the stars throw down their spears, and all the gods their bitter tears, then Another howl comes, a little closer, and I feel myself tense. In hidden ways which have no ends. Mother will hide you from the night gaunts, says the snake, glancing at the statue of Kezia. But you should go.
There's a lot to unpack there, but what I end up saying is, I do need to go underground, I think, but I don't know where to go. The snake tilts its head, and its tongue flicks out to taste the air. Follow the path, it says, as if it's obvious and easy. Then it moves, suddenly, wriggling and coiling its way off of my lap and into the brush and undergrowth around the cave. It's gone before I can react, although I can hear it whispering as it slides into the woods. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. What dream in what immortal mind dare frame thy fearful symmetry? Follow the path, I mutter. Sure. What path? I should have remembered that this is a dream. Because as I speak, the creepers and shrubs on one side of the cave pull back, literally moving while I watch, and reveal a narrow, mossy dirt path leading further into the woods. Oh, I say, that path, of course.